Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. And Karen Koch-Tesman, Senior Editor. Simone, you should say our new Washington, D.C.-based Editor-in-Chief. We had to bring Simone uh, over to the East to keep her eye on our Washington Editor, Steve Usden. All right. Someone had to help sort out these folks in Washington, (laughs) so I thought I'd do my bit for the country. Train the swamp, Simone. (laughs) On this week's pod, we recap our signature issue, Back to School. And speaking of Washington, surprise resignations at FDA. And Aduhelm investigations on the Hill. Plus, Karen returns for her monthly look at what's new in translational news in our What's on Tap segment. First up, back to school. BioCentury's signature issue is a forward-looking package that looks at an issue of broad relevance across the biopharma ecosystem. It's a must-read for drug developers, BD teams, investors, payers, regulators, everyone in the biopharma ecosystem. The 2021 Back to School project, which we published last week, argues that expedited approvals are poised for change, and the package analyzes the way stakeholders can stretch the vision of this regulatory pathway. The entire package can be found on BioCentury's website, www.biocentury.com. Simone, accelerated approval. You and the team have been digging into this all summer. And here we are. It's it's wrapped. What is the stretch vision for accelerated approval? So first of all, Jeff, I'm going to reassure all the listeners and everyone on this pod that I'm not going to recap the whole of Back to School. I don't think I would get many friends for doing that. We published 17 stories or articles on it with more than 30 data items and, of course, for podcasts. Accelerated approval was the topic this year because it's exploded as an urgent issue in the biopharma ecosystem, more broadly even in the health system, triggered by Aduhelm, the accelerated approval that was surprising and controversial, and that's Biogenstrug. There are really a lot of issues with accelerated approval And a lot of focus had gone on the negative aspects of it. And there really are some challenges. And so we took a step back and we said, look, there's three parts of this pathway. And that's how we broke down our analysis. There's what you need to do to get approved. There's once a drug is approved, the confirming trials that you need to do to substantiate or maintain it on the market. And then the third part is making decisions that regulators, companies, in some cases, payers, making decisions based on the evidence that comes up. You know, at at each of those stages, there are a lot of challenges, surrogate markers, surrogate endpoints, access, how to pay for it is another. But we also found some very, very exciting innovations taking place that we think are really going to shape all three stages of the accelerated approval pathway. So new biomarkers, new approaches people are taking, genomics, new thinking about regulatory and payment structures. I want to emphasize that I've used the word accelerated approval, but we really took a global look because FDA's pathway has been emulated and iterated on 
around the world. And in fact, some of those other agencies, EMA and Japan and China and even the UK, have really created sort of nuanced improvements here and there, all of them towards improving this overall process of expediting getting drugs to patients based on less data than you would normally use, and then following that up with more rigorous trials to substantiate it. And I think to answer your point about the stretch vision, we really believe that it's poised for change, that that accelerated could and should become commonplace in many diseases. Right now, it's commonplace in cancer. Virtually everywhere else, it's hardly used. And we really want to see it commonplace in many diseases so that you would have patients across the spectrum benefiting from earlier access to drugs where there are no alternatives. One thing I would add on that very quickly is that the accelerated approval pathways and conditional approval pathways in other countries are really predicated on the idea that understandings of the underlying mechanisms and causes of diseases can be used to direct drug development and regulatory decision-making so that it all can happen in a more targeted, more efficient, and more effective manner. The idea is to create a, a learning healthcare system that starts by understanding what are the underlying causes of diseases or conditions, and then developing drugs that modulate those, getting them onto the market as quickly as possible, and then continually learning and using those learnings to feedback onto clinical practice and regulatory decisions and payment decisions that are based on that. I'd like to bring in Karen here. Uh, Karen, you did a piece on the future of biomarkers, new tools that companies are likely to use. How does that fit into what Steve and Simone just mentioned there? Well, one of my favorite quotes that I got from speaking to folks on this topic was around squeezing out the uncertainty. This was around the context of identifying new biomarkers that could either serve as new surrogate endpoints themselves or perhaps generate more confidence around surrogate endpoints, with the idea being that take a top-down look at what is known about the disease and what we still have yet to understand, and then also do a bottom-up look with omics technologies that are unbiased and look broadly at the physiological state of disease and of drug response to disease. And between those top-down and bottom-up approaches sort of squeeze out the uncertainty in terms of what we understand. Just thinking about it in the context of Aduhelm, wouldn't it be enlightening to have an omics picture of the response when amyloid is cleared and what that could tell us about the residual uncertainty of what's going on and the potential for clinical benefits. So that's something that I'm personally excited about seeing more of in the coming years. Thanks, Karen. As I said, the package is available on our website. You can also tune into our special series of podcasts that Simone mentioned where Karen, Lauren Martz, Stephen Hansen, Steve, and Simone break down the coverage day by day that we laid out. I'd like to turn to Washington now, where last week, resignations by FDA's two most senior regulators responsible for the oversight of vaccines, Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss, surprised their colleagues at FDA 
as well as vaccine developers and the public at large. Gruber and Krauss, director and deputy director, respectively, of Sieber's Office of Vaccines Research and Review, are the ones who are departing. They had been responsible for the oversight and review of COVID-19 vaccines. Steve, you broke this story last week. What's the significance of the resignations and what's the fallout likely to be? I think there's just like anything that happens in Washington, there's two different ways of looking at what the significance is. One, what's the political fallout? And then two, what's the practical fallout? What does it mean in practice? Politically, the story, I was amazed, actually, it blew up. You know, it was in every single major newspaper around the world and was a subject of questions at uh, White House press conferences. And I think that it shocked people because it came, obviously, at a time when there are really important regulatory decisions that have to be made about COVID-19 vaccines. And the fact that the two top people are resigning, apparently, in concert seems to send a signal that there's something amiss. We don't really know what it is. It may be that their decisions are related to concerns that the White House has marginalized FDA on decisions about boosters for COVID-19 vaccines. There's some reporting that suggests that. As far as I know, nobody who's reported that has actually spoken with either Mary Gruber or Phil Krause. So it's kind of in the realm of speculation. But in any case, it's really shined a light on this issue, also on the kind of murkiness of the lines of authority between FDA, CDC, and the White House on vaccine policy. The other thing I think that it also should shine a light on is the morale issues at FDA. Senior people and frontline people at FDA tell me privately that morale there is low. There's a sense that they've been under assault, that there's unrelenting flow of work, There's no separation between work and home. Everybody at FDA has been, or almost everybody has been working at home for the duration of the pandemic and people who are used to leaving their laptops at the office and coming home and having some kind of a separation have not had that. FDA officials are routinely responding to emails and sending them at 1130 night, 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, that kind of thing. And it's been going on and on. Nobody's taken any vacation since the pandemic started. There's no sense that there's an end in sight. But I think all of that is also playing into to the issues around morale at FDA. And I think they're really going to be the top issue that whoever the next permanent commissioner is going to have to address. Both the issues of morale and burnout at FDA and of public confidence in the agency, which is definitely undermined when you see senior officials like this resign. One other thing I'd say about it is that was really interesting to me. I called around and I spoke with on and off the record with some of the top vaccine developers in the world about their responses to Drs. Gruber and Krauss resigning. And they were all shocked and dismayed. They all used exactly the same expression. It said it's a huge loss. I think that it's really rare to have two people who have shaped a field as thoroughly as they have and who are as widely respected as they are. Yeah, I have a couple of things to add here. So On the question of FDA staffers and morale and the no end in sight, I think that's a really important aspect of this. Early on in the pandemic, we talked a lot to drug developers who told us that FDA staff had been phenomenal. They were working around the clock as everybody was sort of pulling together and trying to get their drugs under trials for COVID-19 or new coronaviruses, it was called then, and so on. And so FDA staffers were getting a lot of props from industry insiders as well, at least for how hard they're working. But let's be honest, first of all, 
You can't take that to the bank. And secondly, I think maybe we're now sort of a year on and the no end in sight. The praise has gone away. The angst continues. The amount of work continues. It now just isn't only about coronavirus. It's about everything else as well. I think that that's really tough on FDA, on FDA staffers. Again, as you pointed out, without really knowing the direction of the agency, because they're in the same limbo as everybody else is regarding their leadership. I think the other thing that you're talking about is really a hornet's nest. This issue related to the public and the public perception of the agencies. I did ask a few people outside of our ecosystem to name me the top two public health officials that they knew of. Of course, everybody mentioned Fauci. Several of them mentioned Walensky or by name, the CDC director. Nobody talks about FDA. I think the question of who's ahead of whom, a lot of people who want vaccines are going ahead and getting their third shots, their boosters, either because they are able to get it or because they found a way to get it off the book, so to speak. And so there is a question there as to whether FDA is almost behind the curve on that one or whether CDC and Biden's administration jumped the gun. There's a lot of controversy about it. We don't know whether these resignations are in any way related to that, but I think that they have stirred up that whole hornet's nest, as I say, of controversy. And at the end of the day, FDA has lost apparently two very, very qualified individuals, and certainly the agency is not better off today than it was a week ago. Well, there's other FDA news that came out last week. U.S. Congress is ratcheting up the pressure on FDA to disclose details about and provide justifications for its accelerated approval of Aduhelm, the Alzheimer's therapy from Biogen and Esai. Last week, ENC Chair Frank Pallone from the great state of New Jersey and Oversight and Reform Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney sent Janet Woodcock a request for information about the approval. They noted that the OIG will explore many of the questions that they have, but they said the public cannot wait until 2023 when the department expects to reveal its findings. They set a deadline much tighter than that, I think about a week or two from now. Steve, you wrote last week on the wide-ranging impact these investigations could have, everything from the careers of FDA staffers to long-term policy at FDA. What are the most important things at stake here? I'll get to that, but just a second. I want to First, I want to unpack a couple of those acronyms. ENC is Energy and Commerce Committee, and OIG is the Office of the Inspector General, the kind of nonpartisan watchdog agency at HHS. Look, I think that there's two potential sets of outcomes here, or maybe three. One is, as you said, impacts on careers. I think the controversy around Aduhelm has reinforced skepticism on Capitol Hill about appointing Dr. Woodcock permanently as FDA commissioner. I think if the investigations find that there were violations, serious violations of FDA policies, it might affect the careers of FDA staffers. The one that there's been the most reporting about is Billy Dunn, the head of the Office of Neuroscience, who is most directly involved in the Aduhelm decision. The other thing I think is that it's likely to result in calls for process changes at FDA. That's happened in the past. There's a precedent for that when there have been controversies about FDA decisions, for example, over opioids, 
Congress passed a law and said that FDA has to hold an advisory committee meeting for any opioid approval, any approval of any new opioid. And there's pending legislation that would extend that to label changes for opioids. I think it's quite likely that Congress is going to look at doing something similar for accelerated approvals. It might say that FDA has to specifically ask advisory committees for input on decisions to grant accelerated approval. The other thing I think that's likely to come under fine scrutiny is FDA's informal communications with biopharma companies and biopharma executives. Their allegations that Biogen had so-called off-the-books communications with Billy Dunn and with others at FDA. And I think that's kind of a two-edged sword. If, if FDA ends up clamping down on these informal communications, on the one hand, it increases transparency and maybe confidence in regulatory decisions. It kind of creates a level playing field for companies that don't have the kind of personal relationships with senior FDA officials that some biopharma companies have. On the other hand, there are a number of biopharma CEOs who've told me that their ability to pick up the phone and speak with the FDA commissioner, the center directors for drugs or biologics, or the head of the um, Office of New Drugs has really been invaluable in cutting through red tape, in resolving issues that have unnecessarily slowed drug development, and cutting off their ability to do that could impinge on the ability of companies to efficiently develop drugs. The final thing is that the whole Adjuhelm controversy and the investigations around that are going to feed into debates over whether the accelerated approval pathway itself should be modified. I'm actually personally skeptical that Congress is actually going to, to do much to change, to dramatically change the accelerated approval pathway. The people who are calling for accelerated approval to be changed want to clamp down. They want to increase the bar, the threshold for drugs receiving accelerated approval. Congress has consistently gone in the other direction. It's been very sympathetic to patient groups who have demanded faster access to drugs, who have said that they're willing to take risks, to risk drugs not being effective or even being harmful, if that's what it takes to get the opportunity to have something that will help them. And I don't think Congress is likely to change course on that. Well, the pressure is certainly on FDA and Biogen. We'll continue to follow this story. We've written extensively about it, and you can find those stories on our website, biocentury.com, back in our archives. Let's turn to translational news. Karen joins us once again to tell us what's on tap in Biocentury's distillery. Thanks, Jeff. Well, there certainly is a lot flowing. Our monthly send has upwards of 45 distillery items for the past month. And one of the things that's really risen to the top, and you'll be seeing a story about this soon, is around the integrated stress response. So this is basically a cellular pathway that can respond to various different forms of cell stress by shutting down most translation of new proteins and just keeping the cell in, in sort of a low activity mode. And it seems like it's really cropping up as a potential control node for a lot of different diseases. So 
my colleague, Danielle Galvin is going to be writing about that pretty soon. You'll be able to see, but just from the distillery, we've been seeing papers on this come on thick and fast. And there was a Hebrew university of Jerusalem study about the integrated stress response, inhibiting that to treat necrotiting fasciitis and group A streptococcus. There was also some Canadian and European researchers showed targeting the pathway could help treat KRAS mutant lung cancers. And as you'll see from Danielle's story, it's really a really broad disease relevance. And one company that's shown some activity in this space is Calico, and she got a chance to speak with them. So that'll be coming up, but you can see some previews of that in the distillery. And then separately, the other thing we've really been noticing is a cluster of papers around new CRISPR technologies, ways of making CRISPR less immunogenic or packaging it more tightly. And there's a lot of papers that's been coming out there, a bunch from Feng Zheng. One of the things a couple of weeks ago, he came up with a platform around reducing viral immunogenicity. But I think there's a lot of activity in this space from Zhang and others, and that's something we'll be rounding up in a story soon, but we've got bits of that coming out from our translation and brief section as well. We'll be looking to round up those things, align them, say which one solves which problem. Excellent. Thanks, KTT. Also coming up on BioCentury in the coming weeks, Steve will be speaking with Ellis Unger, who is retiring from FDA. He's one of FDA's most outspoken internal critics and champions of data integrity. He certainly picked a tumultuous time for the agency to retire after 24 years there. We'll also have a profile of perceptive advisors and our usual stream of emerging company profiles. That's all we have time for this week. Don't forget to check our website for the Back to School package. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.